This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to Veritas 2013 and Season 5. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible, and now on its fifth season. It's the beginning of the year, and it will be a great time to subscribe so you can listen to all of our material. Just go to veritasradio.com and you will receive your login immediately, and we'll be able to stream, download, and take Veritas with you wherever you go, and all in CD audio quality. Start the year on the right track and get the information you won't get in the mainstream media. And one month is less than a movie ticket. Think about it. How much value one movie gives you versus hundreds of Veritas interviews. Subscribe today. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store. Among the many items, we have Season 4 of our futuristic metal-cased USB drives. Purchase all of the seasons and save on shipping. And with this cold weather, you should always have MMS handy. You never know when you will need it, and it's so inexpensive. And if you need to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on the show, or are a whistleblower, click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I met tonight's special guest at a special conference. I was recently invited in Philadelphia. You will hear from a lot of people I met at this event very soon. But tonight's special guest is Thomas P. Fusco. 
who will be discussing the theory of supergeometry, presented in his book, Behind the Cosmic Veil, a new vision of reality that describes a new model of supernatural mechanics, which not only explains the behavior of strange phenomena like the paranormal, UFOs, and psychic phenomena, but also provides compelling answers to some of the fundamental problems facing physics today. In essence, Thomas Fusco has theory, a scientifically provable theory about the nature, the science of the unexplained, of the paranormal. Thomas P. Fusco is an independent researcher who has devoted nearly three decades investigating the relationship between mind, physics, spirituality, parapsychology, scientific anomalies, and paranormal phenomena with the goal of uncovering the unifying cosmological framework that has eluded mankind for generations. Since the official launch of his book in November 2011, he has been invited to speak as a guest on nearly 200 national and international radio programs, including Coast to Coast AM. He will be speaking at the upcoming Spirits, Shadows and Secrets International Symposium to be held in August 2013 in Edinburgh, Scotland and was a participant with yours truly in the invitation-only Think Tank conference called The Gathering in November 2012. And to learn more about Thomas Fusco and his work and to purchase his book, Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality, visit his website at Cosmic Veil, that's Cosmic and Veil, V is in Victor, E-I-L dot com. And directly from somewhere in Florida, I'm privileged to have with me my friend Thomas Fusco. Hello, Thomas. How are you? I'm doing great, Mal. How's it going there? It's great. And by the way, I call you my friend because we spent some some time in Philadelphia a few weeks ago, and I thoroughly enjoyed what you had to say. And I have to confess, apparently you approached me a few weeks ago or months ago, and uh, one of our producers didn't know who you were, and uh, apparently I didn't get the information. But meeting you there, and you captivated a lot of the people who attended this this gathering of minds, and I, I knew that I had to have you on. I read your book in the past few days, uh, Thomas, and it's an incredible book. Obviously, it took you a long time to put together, Behind the Cosmic Veil. But first of all, I want you to tell us a little bit more about, about you, and there's a story that I want you to tell us. To set the stage, the story about the painting and, and your friend, but give us first a little bit of a background beyond what I read. Well, essentially, uh, I had some uh, experiences, uh, parapsychological experiences, in my uh, teens and early 20s uh, that caused me very much to call into question uh, the model of the universe that was taught to me in physics. Uh, and so for me, and as, as, you, as I tell people, I don't really talk too much about the details of these experiences on the air. Uh, people can go to my website and read about, uh, you know, some of them in my introduction. I sample chapters if they take a look at that. But ultimately, Mel, uh, what it did was it caused me to ask a very fundamental question what kind of a universe could allow these types of things to occur? How could the universe possibly be put together that enables these kinds of effects to occur? Um, 
anything that is observable and measurable, uh, anything that actually occurs in the physical brain has to conform with the laws and principles that assemble those things that make up uh, physical reality. And so rather than to uh, focus myself on the practice of these types of things, uh, I was compelled to try to find out the reasons why. And so that uh, embarked me on uh, many years of research and uh, trying to come up with a model uh, that would uh, accommodate all these types of phenomena, including uh, conventional findings of science and physics. And so ultimately that came up with the, uh, or that led to the theory of supergeometrics. Uh, that's explained in my book. And most of us who discuss the paranormal always have that story that uh, was a catalyst or that catapulted us into finding answers. And like you, I had a an overdeveloped sense of wonder. I always wanted to ask why of everything. And to many people, that was annoying. But now, at an, at an older age, I continue doing so. I know you don't like to talk about your experiences, but I think there's one that I'd like you to briefly touch, if you could. Uh, the story when you were invited to your friend's house and what happened. What you're talking about is uh, an experience I had in high school. Uh, I had met a girl there, uh, and uh, she had invited me over to her folks' house for lunch uh, about a week after I met her. Now, I didn't really know much about her at all. We had only spoke a couple times, and uh, her folks' home was very close to the school. Uh, so we went over there, and while she's in the kitchen making sandwiches, I'm looking around the living room, and I see a painting uh, on the wall, and when I started looking at it, Uh, suddenly I got a very sharp pain in my left forearm. And when uh, the girl came back into to the living room with the sandwiches, a question just came off the top of my head that seemed to make perfect sense at the time because I didn't think about it too much. <laughs> And I asked her, did the person who painted this ever injure their arm? And, I, of course, I had no idea she would have any clue as to who might have painted anything that was that her parents had hung on a wall. And she just about turned white. And when she recovered herself, uh, she told me that uh, this was actually painted by her older brother. I had no idea whether she had any siblings or anything like that. And uh, during the period that he was painting it, several years before, uh, he was doing some work out into the wooded area uh, on their property with a chainsaw and actually severely uh, injured his left forearm, uh, the same place where I, uh, you know, felt that pain. And so I didn't think too much of it at the time, uh, but later on in reviewing it, uh, in my mind, it was like, well, this is something that's far beyond anything that one could call mere coincidence. And with the combination of several other types of experiences throughout the next handful of years, uh, it led me invariably to uh, conclude that there was a way that the universe was put together 
that allows these kinds of things to occur. And so that really was kind of the catalyst that uh, got me started into this study. And, of course, if I had been in your shoes, I would have asked why. And this brings me to something I've, I've learned lately, you know, even by, by remote viewing instructors who say the first reaction, the instinct, the first reaction is is the valid one. Because in the conventional mind, you experience something like that and you perhaps think, oh, I just experienced some, some pain on my left arm. But the first reaction for you to ask the question, you know, who painted this and, and to, to connect the dots, you, Thomas, have a theory, a scientifically provable theory about the nature, the science of the unexplained, of the paranormal. In that case, what conclusion did you come up with before you even asked the question to your, your friend? Uh, before I asked her, quest- asked her the question? Yes, before and after. There was no conscious thought. It was just uh, a question that just came off the top of my head. Like you say, Mel, kind of uh, an instinct, just you know, uh, speaking what came to your mind without really, you know, reviewing it in your reason before it popped out. Isn't this proof, and I, I wonder if you could elaborate on this, that sometimes ego takes over. For example, we're, we're embarking into a new business venture, and we analyze every book, but the first instinct says, don't do it. Well, we follow the logic, we follow the science, and we go with that. Is ego fighting the instinct, Thomas? Oh, I think that uh, any uh, type of uh, center of reasoning or, uh, you know, varying sources of thought or information can certainly be in in conflict with one another. Uh, The ego is uh, certainly going to play a role because in most cases when someone's starting a business, they're doing it for personal reasons and personal gain. And yes, absolutely, I think that that can certainly cloud one's ability to see things for what they actually are. And this theory that you have, the, the scientifically provable theory, for all of us in this field, when we hear of uh, ghost huntings, which is not a topic that we discuss that much, although it, it somewhat interests me, and we hear of all the paranormal stories of the people that email me all the time, everybody wants to know. Everyone wants to find answers. And in your case, you're saying that you have a theory that is scientifically provable. How do you prove it? Any kind of a theory, in order for it to be a scientific theory, is that the theory makes predictions about certain aspects of reality that are experimentally verifiable. Uh, People hear all different kinds of theories from about all different types of things from all different sources. But this is what distinguishes a scientific theory, is that it makes specific predictions about aspects of reality that are experimentally testable. And so uh, as we're proceeding, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about a number of those uh, uh, different types of predictions uh, that this theory makes and how they could be experimentally verified. Certainly. And I think of the word nonsense. I think of the word paranormal. Just because we cannot understand it, 
via scientific method and so on. Nonsense is something that we cannot understand. Paranormal, we consider it paranormal because in our realm, we don't consider it normal. But is it normal? And we just don't understand it, Thomas. I think, Mel, that that's really uh, what we ultimately um, have to conclude if we approach the question objectively. I mean, one can debate uh, whether these type of events occur or not, but I think at this point in time, that's more of a denier's position. I think that uh, paranormal phenomena that it actually occurs uh, is pretty safe to accept as, as a fact. Uh, but here's a body of information, what I call a very important body of evidence, uh, that doesn't fit within the conventional paradigms. And so this body of evidence is the proof that our paradigms are either incomplete or incorrect. So for me, I didn't feel it was ultimately a question of uh, acquiring more and more evidence. I think that there's sufficient evidence there. It was a question of coming up with a model of reality which accommodated this body of evidence, which allowed this body of evidence not only to exist within its structure, within its pattern, uh, its concept, but that would also accommodate all other types of known observation and avoid the kind of uh, stumbling blocks that other researchers have run into in studying too narrow of a subject and not including it in the greater picture of reality. You know, when, when I read your book, it reminded me also of the work of uh, Dr. Claude Swanson, whom you probably met at the gathering that you and I had att attended. You know, scientists who, who get out of academia to prove that the paranormal can be scientifically proven. Let's take just ghosts, which is the first thing that comes to mind. Many people call them ghosts, spirits, disembodied energies, whatever you want to call them. How can somebody prove that? I know that some people have electronic, uh, you know, measurement uh, equipment and machines to do that. But in a scientifically oriented environment with a, a control environment where we can replicate it, can we do that? Yes, there's actually been uh, quite a bit of uh, work done uh, in that particular direction to come up with a, uh, a verifiable and repeatable, uh, reproducible uh, type of scientifically relevant and valid experimentation that can be conducted in the field. But what I came to the understanding of, Mel, is that the important previous step, the first step, is to come up with a paradigm. The raw collection of data and information in and of itself doesn't help us. It doesn't lead us to anywhere past a certain point. Uh, what we need to do is to come up with a model of what I call paranormal mechanics that gives us a, a very sound theoretical foundation as to what is actually occurring 
a theory that answers all the pertinent questions that are presented to it in a consistent way. And then we go and conduct the experiments. Uh, remember, the first step in the scientific method is to formulate a question and then develop a theory based on that question. And then the experimentation comes later. And so this is what the field has been lacking is this kind of a model that many people are now believing that I've actually come up with. And you, what you said is so important because I've always wondered why I didn't start this show earlier on in life and I had to wait until I was much older. And because I always wanted answers, but the problem was I didn't know what questions to ask until now. And this, this theory that can be applied uh, in quantum uh, physics and, and other scientific uh, anomalies, how do you actually apply it? Well, the, the, first, uh, the first step of that, I think, Mel, is to talk real briefly about what the heart of this theory is. Uh, try to reduce it into its simplest uh, uh, concept, so to speak. And one of the elements that became prevalent in all of this research is the idea of information. And this is an idea that is uh, very firmly established in mainstream science today. Uh, so much so that we now have an extension to the traditional conservation laws that say matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Uh, the extension of that is called quantum unitarity. And essentially what it says is that the information from which matter and energy is assembled and its structure and its form itself can neither be created nor destroyed. Now, what I've done is to recognize that this idea of information uh, basically forming everything that we see is the fundamental paradigm of the universe. Uh, it's like what I've said, I think we mentioned before in conversation, if you picture the Great Pyramid of Giza, and imagine that being a representation of physical reality, but when we discover it, it's spread out all over the place. All of its stones are disassembled, and it's spread out all over the plains of Giza. Let's assume further that we don't have another pyramid in the, in the world, by which we can compare to it and maybe get an idea how it's put together. Every single one of those blocks represents a different aspect of reality. And when we peer as an observer out onto the rest of the reality from any particular stone, we get a unique perspective and a unique picture of a relationship between that stone and all the other stones. We can certainly see patterns, and those patterns are significant. But there's only one stone that's going to give us the most accurate picture. The capstone. What. Yes, it's the capstone. And the capstone itself actually is shaped like a pyramid. And so once we find that capstone, we not only have a clue to how everything's put together, but we also can see how all the blocks fit in in relationship to one another. And for me that capstone ultimately proved to be the concept of information. So much so, Mel, that I've been able to formulate what I consider my definition of the universe, 
which is that the universe, physical universe, is an expression of materialized and materializing information. If we take that paradigm and apply it first, primarily, to any of these mysteries uh, that we have been puzzling over for even centuries, then the veil begins to lift and we begin to get a start in understanding exactly what's going on. You know, it's interesting you mentioned this because I'm always thinking of that. I, th You know, everybody talks about the Big Bang and, and, and all those, but I wonder what you just said. You may see all the stones not put together, but you find the capstone and then you have an idea of the proportions of that pyramid and the size and the height and all that. I also think... And I think I've heard you say this, that, uh, of course, uh, matter is neither created nor destroyed. But I also heard you say that information is neither created nor destroyed. Do you think, and let me just add the Fibonacci sequence for, for a moment. There's something I've been studying lately, and I'm so impressed with it. Do you think that this information is responsible for the way the universe was created? It would have to be. If we take the notion... Uh, of the Big Bang, and we take a look at uh, a physicist's description of what that is and what it was, they say that it began as a singularity that was infinitely dense and infinitely small. Now, when a physicist or a scientist or even a mathematician talks about a thing as being infinite, they are automatically carrying with that the implication that it is not physical because everything in the physical universe is finite. Uh, it is uh, dimensional, and dimensions are measurements of difference. But something that is infinite has no distinguishing differences. In fact, when mathematicians are working on physical theories and a formula comes up with a value of infinity, They know already something's wrong, something's missing or was done incorrectly because nothing that's physical has a value of infinity. So here we have this infinitely dense and infinitely small singularity that unfolds into finite dimensionalism and finite reality. And then everywhere in this unfolding at the same time, the particulate material, whatever it is or was, in the very early universe, suddenly begins to self-assemble itself into subatomic particles and electrons and photons. No evolutionary trial or error system, but everywhere in that cosmic cloud, they begin to assemble themselves to a specific set of principles in order that exists till this day, which means that that information must have been contained in that singularity. And so everything in the universe unfolded from that initial pre-physical or what I call a superphysical blueprint or supergeometry that the whole universe is modeled after. Now, please define supergeometry. We, we hear the word sacred geometry. Is there a correlation here between the two terms? Similar, but they're, they're really not the same thing. Uh, Supergeometry embodies 
every structure and every form and every piece of information that's in the universe. Uh, this term, Mel, has been around, at least the concept behind the term, has been around for a very, very, very long time. I think the first one who really tried to tackle it on some sort of a scientific way was Plato, and he called it forms. Uh, the Bible speaks of the Word of God and the wisdom of God. Uh, it speaks of uh, the logos, which is that Greek philosophical term that means the same thing. Uh, order, structure, matrix, mind, thought. Information. Yes, yes. Uh, when we go up into the 20th century, uh, we have some very prominent, well-known uh, physicists, n not fringe, but mainstream physicists like David Bohm, uh, who coined it implicate order. He said this, this was a structure, a blueprint, that existed outside of space-time, but gave rise to the explicate order of matter and energy, space and time, and all of its structures. Uh, physicist John Wheeler called it pre-geometry. Uh, David Finkelstein, his particular version of it is called coherent superpositions. Uh, my choice of the word supergeometry was that, A, I wanted something, a word like geometry, where people could wrap their heads around it, get some kind of a sense of the idea being conveyed, uh, rather than something ambiguous like uh, Edgar Cayce's Akasha, which he was talking about the exact same thing. And then the term super is pulled straight from scientific literature. It's a standard prefix when you're speaking about a superset of something else. And so supergeometry, to me, uh, describes what this is and also indicates it's actually a superset or a superphysical overlay on top of physical reality. Well, it seems that geometry is the universal language. If we were to be in touch with a, another civilization, wouldn't that be a language that we would all understand, geometry? Absolutely, because any type of uh, civilization advanced enough to be able to pick up any type of communication that we would be sending would know these same orders and structures and laws and principles that govern the universe in a whole. Uh, our universe is so orderly, Mel, that we can take um, with particular telescopes and look to the outer edges that we could see of the universe and take that light and subject it to uh, mass spectral uh, analysis and tell quite a bit about their chemical composition of their stars, how far they are away, how fast that uh, structure may be moving relative to ours. And the reason being is because the same math that is at work here is at work at the edges of the universe. Otherwise, the information that we would receive would be garbage. And so any civilization would be able to understand uh, geometry as a form of or an aspect of the ordered and structured information from which the entire universe is assembled. 
I used to have a cousin who passed away, Thomas. He used to work for NASA. He was an aerospace engineer. And as a child, as a teenager, I used to have conversations with him. And I used to ask him, you know, I, I believe in extraterrestrial life. Just looking up at, at the stars, there are probably billions of stars and trillions of planets. And he said to me, well, that's a possibility. But the question is, they cannot make it from there to here. In other words, he, he would tell me, there's no way using scientific proven methods on Earth that they could actually uh, deploy themselves from point A to point B using uh, the speed of light because you would need so much energy. How do you explain all these sightings that for decades people have been able to see? And we're getting to the UFO realm now. Well, according to my model, reality and that's a very important term, comprises more than the physical universe. Many people, uh, many scientists, equate reality with the physical universe, that they're synonymous. And so they say such things are not possible, and such things cannot be, and such things cannot be overcome because of whatever, X, Y, Z, all expressing limitations and constraints built into the physical universe, physical reality. But what my model contends is that there's more to reality than the physical universe, that there is an aspect of reality that is superphysical, that sits above the physical universe. And in that particular realm or domain, because the word dimension is tough to use up there, not really a dimension as we normally understand it. Um, that particular realm is not constrained in the same way that the physical is. So, for example, if we're going to talk about information as being the source from which all matter and energy and all of the structures in the physical universe are derived, and if we're further going to contend that the information itself can neither be created nor destroyed. And then we go further and say that the information, based on the concept of the Big Bang, originated pre-physically, before there was physical reality. That means that that information can be materialized at another location within space and time and bypassing the physical constraints. If you take the information that materializes the reality present at point A, you could take that same information and materialize that aspect of reality at point B because the information is not being constrained by any physical limitations in moving from A to B through physical space. Now, you see, the time time and space, bending time and space concept is something that I'm, I'm wrestling with just because my conventional mind says that it's impossible. So I'm just trying to get away from those limitations. But we think of the visual and the audio spectrum. As humans, we can only see to a certain extent. And as humans, we can only hear to a certain extent. But then we have the physical spectrum. Let's, let's take the radio analogy that I use, just because we have the the uh, the tuner, say, 104.1, doesn't mean that 
other radio stations don't exist. We're just not tuned to them. Is it the same with the physical spectrum? Matter has to vibrate at a certain point in order for us to for us to perceive it. And if it's not, perhaps it's in a different dimension. Help me understand this. Yes, and this is where conventional paradigms fail us. Because even those of us who tend to uh, or want to think in spiritual terms, whatever that word may mean to any individual, uh, for most people that means something other than physical. When we try to digest it and assimilate it and reason with it, we invariably wind up assigning physical qualities and characteristics to it. And this is a part of the fault of, you know, conventional paradigms. So, for example, when we're talking about frequency and amplitude, uh, which is what these wavelengths are, mm-hmm. these are all dimensional, Mel. Frequency is a measurement of time. It is a temporal characteristic of a wavelength. Amplitude is its dimension, spatially, height, width, and depth. So in order to have a wavelength, you have to have four dimensions, height, width, depth, and time. Because a true wavelength travels tubularly. It's more cylindrical. It's not like a two-dimensional wave that we see on a flat piece of paper. What I'm saying is that what those wavelengths or those wave functions derive from is not physical. It unfolds into that physical dimensionalism. So rather than to wrestle with the obstacles and the paradoxes that are contained in trying to explain every observable phenomenon in a physical sense, using physical terms, what I'm saying is that certain aspects of reality exist beyond that. And so consequently, we don't have to reason with is, is something on a different wavelength or frequency. We can reason with that process, which gives rise to every wavelength and frequency. What about dimensions? According to Professor Michio Kaku, he believes our multiverse, and I know you don't believe in, in the multiverse, is 11-dimensional. Well, let's hear from Dr. Kaku. We believe, though we cannot yet prove, that our multiverse of universes is 11-dimensional. So think of this 11-dimensional arena. And in this arena, there are bubbles, bubbles that float. And the skin of the bubble represents an entire universe. So we're like flies trapped on flypaper. We're on the skin of a bubble. It's a three-dimensional bubble. The three-dimensional bubble is expanding. And that's called the Big Bang Theory. And sometimes these bubbles can bump into each other. Sometimes they can split apart. And that, we think, is the Big Bang. So we even have a theory of the Big Bang itself. What about the dimensions of each bubble? Well, in string theory, which is what I do for a living, that's my day job, in string theory, we can have bubbles of different dimensions. The highest dimension is 11. You cannot go beyond 11 because universes become unstable beyond 11. If I write down the theory of a 13, 15-dimensional universe, it's unstable, and it collapses down to an 11-dimensional universe. But within 11 dimensions, you can have bubbles that are three-dimensional, four-dimensional, five-dimensional. These are membranes. So for short, we call them brains. 
So these brains can exist in different dimensions. And let's say P represents the dimension of each bubble. So we call them P brains. So a P brain is a universe in different dimensions floating in a much larger arena. Also remember that each bubble vibrates and each bubble vibrating creates music. The music of these membranes is the subatomic particles. Each subatomic particle represents a note on a vibrating string or vibrating, mem vibrating membranes. So believe it or not, we now have a candidate for the mind of God that Albert Einstein wrote about for the last 30 years of his life. The mind of God in this picture would be cosmic music resonating throughout 11-dimensional hyperspace. What's your take on this? What we're talking about are mathematical constructs. And what is being given a value mathematically, and this is important uh, for people to understand. So when they hear these different theories, they understand what the underlying concepts are. In order to assign a mathematical value to these other coordinates, which is a better way of putting it, they're given the generic term of a dimension, but we cannot demonstrate anything other than the four dimensions that make up and comprise our physical realm. So one of the problems with all of these additional quote-unquote dimensions in these various theories is trying to explain how these dimensions fold up into themselves so that they are undetectable within the physical realm of height, width, depth, and time. You cannot, and this is very important, the terms that are being used are very important, you cannot materialize, physicalize any dimension other than the four that comprise what is material and physical. So these extra dimensions are theoretical, and the problems that they all uh, confront is explaining how these extra dimensions can exist within the four dimensions of space-time and be undetectable and unexpressible, and yet they still exist. It's a mathematical speculation, if you will. And this brings me to... to the concept of uh, dark matter. Why do we call it dark ma matter? Is it because we simply can't see it? How is science explaining dark matter? Uh, Mel, that's a very good question, and it addresses the heart of philosophy, physics philosophy. And this is very important for people to understand when they hear all these uh, uh, terms being thrown around, these different kinds of theories. The as we mentioned, the predominant philosophy in physics today is that the universe comprises reality. There is nothing in reality that is outside of the physical universe. So here we have, we've come to a point in our sciences where we can observe more physical effects than we can detect physical causes for. There's more observations physically in our universe than there is physical material to explain them. We have literally run out of material, causal material, to explain all the effects that we see. 
Now, if you're working in a paradigm that everything must be physical and you can't detect any physical cause, you have to make one up. And so here we see in the universe these effects of gravity and what they call gravitational lensing, where these fields actually bend space and warp the light that is traveling through them. When we add all this up, Mel, we come up with about 90% more gravitational effect than there is mass in the universe to explain it. So rather than to come up with a superphysical or an extra-physical explanation, which would be the violation of the primary uh, philosophy of physics today, we have to make up the material. We have to imagine that this material exists, even though we have absolutely no evidence that it does. And so this is where the term dark matter comes from. Since everything is material, the cause must be material, and if we can't find it, we simply make it up. We can't see it. We can't measure it. doesn't matter. It must be there because our view of reality uh, eliminates anything that could possibly be outside of the physical. Well, take t- gravity. I'm glad we're, we're talking about gravity, which is a concept that still puzzles me because science has not discovered a graviton or a gravity wave. Can you explain gravity with your theory? Absolutely. Uh, and by the way, Mel, uh, what's, what a lot of people are not aware of, uh, you bring up a good point with this idea of this graviton, is that most of these theories that involve extra dimensions, um, the number one ones that everyone's heard of is string theory. There's various flavors, string theory, super string theory, They all depend on the existence of a graviton. If a graviton actually doesn't exist, all of those theories just vaporize. They just dissolve. Um, And a graviton is also one of these theoretical particles that we actually have absolutely no evidence that that material particle actually exists. Uh, Back in the 20th century, Einstein was working on what he called his unified field theory. And this was the concept that he believed, and it was part of his fundamental vision from which relativity emerged. He believed that all the forces in nature were once assembled into a single unified field, that everything in reality was a unified field of one substance and one type, and then it diversified, it unfolded, into all these other variations that we see uh, in physical reality. His problem that he was never able to resolve was to express gravity mathematically through four dimensions, height, width, depth, and time, and have it balance. Gravity, as you know, is the, is the elephant in the room. Yep. Every time we try to approach gravity with a conventional paradigm, that was established in the 19th century by Maxwell and Faraday, that they considered gravity to be a conventional force, much like electromagnetism. Every time we approach it that way, we fail. Einstein, when he tried to approach it that way, he failed. When we try to reconcile relativity with quantum physics, we fail, and we fail on gravity. The standard model of the universe capital S, capital M, which physicists use to describe all the particles and their interactions, 
um, doesn't have an expression for gravity. There's no place for it. It's not even indicated that such a thing exists. So there was a, a, a mathematician and a scientist named Theodore Calusa, and he was a contemporary of Einstein. He was working alongside of Einstein, helping him with his mathematics on this unified field theory. One day he came up with a concept. He said, what if we try to add a fifth coordinate? It is not a dimension. It's not something that exists within the four coordinates of space and time. But it's a mathematical abstract. Let's put in that fifth coordinate. We don't really know what it is. And he worked it in the equations, and uh, he, he did all the work with that. And at the very end, he subtracted it out so that all he would have left was physical reality, uh, time and space. And he was the only human being by using that technique that ever balanced Einstein's field equations. Um, he came later in his life to come to an understanding that gravity was non-local, that the cause of gravity, which was the bending of space, the source of that actually existed outside of space-time. And the bends of space would come down into our physical reality almost like looking up at a rubber membrane, a stretch rubber membrane with different size and weight balls sitting on the top surface. We can't see those, but underneath we can see all the little depressions, all the pockets that are hanging down into space-time. And that was his model of gravity. Um, if we take that literally, what we're talking about then is something that is not a force. It is not caused by a particle or a wave. It's not, there's no gravitational boson that conveys this force. But it is a characteristic of the assembly process of the universe itself. So if I was going to give a very primitive model of my model of reality or gravity, I would talk about making a meatball melt. <laughs> okay. And think about the meat as all the particles in the substance that would make up a planet, for example. And then you're shaping that with your hand. Imagine that your fingers, your hand, actually represents the surrounding bending of space and the force that you're using to make the meatball. Equate that with gravity. So this actually becomes a repulsive force being pushed in from the bends of space and at the center of the focus of that influence, that force, matter materializes. Now that's in a completely different paradigm. And yet it explains quite a bit of phenomena that we, that we still haven't explained yet. Two questions come to mind. If our planet is like a meatball, what holds it together? And the answer is gravity, but we cannot explain, explain gravity. And this brings me back when I was a child. After coming home one day after a science teacher told me of uh, how, how fast the Earth rotates, 1,000 miles per hour or 67,000 miles per hour around the sun, the first thing I did was go home, take a, uh, a globe, and put some Play-Doh, just stuck some Play-Doh around it, and I started just rotating the, the globe as fast as I could. 
And guess what? All the Plato started just jumping out. Why is it that all the matter that's on the planet, if we're going around in a circle so fast, how is it that anything not embedded into the bedrock doesn't go flying? Please enlighten me. Well, uh, it's, it's, I guess a good model, a good conceptual model, uh, what I talk about is that most people who own a home have a dryer, and every once in a while, they have to open up the screen and clean the lint off. Of it. Yeah. Imagine the wind, the, the air that blows that lint onto that screen being gravity. In other words, it is an influence. I don't want to use the word force because force has a very specific scientific definition. That's a, uh, you know, a force is conveyed by a particle that propagates as a wave. So we can't really call it a force, but it is an influence that pushes smaller things onto larger things because it's a influence that focuses in to the bending of space that surrounds every object in the universe. Einstein theorized it. He mathematically proved it. It's been demonstrated experimentally many, many, many times. Um, Space is curved around all physical objects. And so what this is, is this is actually an influence coming from that bending of space that focuses inward And then that creates an environment in which information materializes. It's a very, very simple, almost childlike concept. And yet it explains so many puzzles that we're still knocking our heads against in physics today. Is the concept of duality embedded into your theory? Let me explain. We have uh, light and we have dark. We have uh, matter, antimatter. Is this part of your equation too, duality? According to the philosophy behind my theory, there can not be a thing, anything, and I'm going to hyphenate that, some dash thing, any dash thing, as opposed to nothing or no dash thing. For anything to exist, There has to be expressions of differences that create the dimensional environment in which a thing can be materialized and projected. I contend that it is impossible to have dimensions without having differences, without having contrasts, without having a duality, and that that duality exists in an imbalance. So that something arises from that duality. Nothing can exist on its own because that would be a singularity. It wouldn't be physical. So there's a duality of all things which contribute to their very physical existence. Um, It could be expressed in a lot of different ways. Uh, I don't know whether I would talk about light or darkness uh, because I think that's a bit more on the metaphysical side. Uh, but we could talk about the oriental physics, which is called Wu Li, which one term means form, 
and the other term means substance, and that everything in the universe comprises form and substance. Uh, a snowflake, for example, its form is its crystalline structure, but its substance is ice, it's water. And so these things combine together to create everything in the universe. Uh, so there is a duality to all things. Just a few weeks ago, and I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times in the past couple of shows, uh, a couple of, of guys, uh, Thomas, took a picture using a, a, a very precise microscope of an atom. And they put the picture next to a picture of a galaxy. And then they put the picture of the atom on top of the galaxy. And guess what? They looked exactly the same. Are we saying that universe or universi exist all the way from atoms all the way to galaxies and beyond? It would have to. And the reason being is because the same laws and order that determines the structure of the subatomic world is carried through into the macro universe. Uh, in fact, according to my model, the macro universe unfolds from the speed of light and it descends downward into different velocities and different structures materialize at those different velocities. Uh, but to address specifically what you're saying, we tend to look at the subatomic world as something beneath us. Right. We even use the term sub. Uh, this is a perceptual misconception. Uh, the way I see it is that the macro universe emerges from that subatomic world. We should actually call it superatomic. Or if we were talking about the human brain, rather than talking about subconscious, we would probably be more accurate to call it superconscious. So any subset in, in, in science, if we take a system and study it and define it, any subset of that system is going to occur or behave in a way that's completely consistent with the laws and principles that govern and establish the greater system uh, to which it is a part. Um, one of the examples that I give, I say that the human being is the evidence that the universe is intelligent, it's alive, and it's creative. Because we're alive, we're intelligent, and we have the ability to materialize information into its physical equivalent in dimensional reality. Anybody listening to this show, just look around yourself. Pretty much everything that you see, especially the computer, none of that is going to occur spontaneously in nature. It requires a human creative faculty to image, and I'm using the word imagination in a more scientific term, image the information and then transform it, materialize it into physical reality. Now, since we are a subset of the greater universe, we've only got one of two positions that we could take. Number one, that the universe actually gave rise to a subset that transcends itself, that violates its laws and principles. Are you saying, Thomas, that uh, if we are a subset of the universe 
and we are intelligent, the universe is intelligent? Where would intelligence come from otherwise? Hmm. This is a scientific, and bear in mind, um, one of the philosophies in mainstream science today is not simply not to go certain places. They simply will not study certain areas like a physicist. Physics is the study of everything physical. That's the definition. But you won't see a physicist, as a general rule, looking at psychology. They say, well, gee, that's not our realm. That's not our field of expertise. Well, I'm sorry. Psychology is a function of the human brain. The human brain is physical. Therefore, it falls under the field of physics. So in the same argument, if we take physical concepts and principles that have been proved from the birth of physics and science itself, we would have to say that because we exist, then the system, the soup, the system that gave rise to us, the subset of that system, has to contain all the laws and principles in it that govern the subset as well. There's, there's no other logical position to take. It's just a paradigm that hasn't really been thought of too much. This really gives meaning of the, the term as above, so below. It means that the macrocosm is the same as the microcosm, and the macrocosm comes, comes from the microcosm. Is that a true statement? Absolutely, Mel. The only difference that I'm trying to do is rather than to walk down that same philosophical or metaphysical way of viewing it, what I'm trying to do is to bring it into scientific relevance, to transcend philosophy and metaphysics and anchor this clearly in scientific thought and scientific reasoning and scientific argument. I'm saying the same thing as you did. I'm just doing it from a scientific perspective. So if somebody asks me, is there life elsewhere in the universe, I will say that I make a prediction that I believe is 100% probable, absolutely certain, that life exists elsewhere in the universe because life is built into the laws and principles that are part of the universe. And this is enough for me, absolutely. You know, as a child looking up at the sky and seeing, as I said, the billions of stars, isn't it the height of arrogance, Thomas, to say that we are alone? And if that's the case, why does academia, and even in a way religious, continue to say that we are alone? Well, again, Mel, this is what the problem has been from a philosophical point of view. Because... And, and I'll be honest with you, I'll make a confession. I always hated philosophy. And the reason why I hated it was that it was an excuse for someone to postulate about the way they believe the nature of reality is, but avoiding any kind of a standard by which the quality of their musings could be judged. So you have your philosophy, I have my philosophy, Everybody can have their own opinion, but when you start anchoring it to solid, proven arguments based on scientific principle, that shifts it into a whole new area. Um, and so in that, I want to stay with that scientific 
type of an approach and kind of shy away from the traditional philosophical ways of, of looking at things. Fair enough. And we have to take our one and only break, Thomas. But when we come back, folks, we have so much more to discuss. I want to ask Thomas, for example, if we are going to start talking about some of the paranormal experiences some of, of the people uh, talk about. For example, take crop circles, take uh, ghost, take apparitions. There's a common denominator that I see all the time, and I've had this conversation with uh, Linda Moulton Howe when she used to go out there and usually her cameras would fail, all her batteries would deplete in a matter of seconds, and even with UFO sightings where people driving a car all of a sudden lose power. That electromagnetic or static field is, seems to be a common denominator when this occurs. And I want you to explain your version of this when we come back. But tell us once again, Thomas, how to get in touch with your work and also how to purchase your book. Uh, everything about my book and, and related articles, uh, a sample chapter that you can read, and uh, even a contact email, uh, and of course, where to buy the book, can all be found at www.cosmicveil, spelled V-E-I-L, cosmicveil.com. And I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and it, it's obvious, Thomas, that you spent years putting it together. And I'm going to need a few more reads before I can get it all. That's how deep it is. But all of this and much more when we return. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas, and I'm here with Thomas Fusco. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
I'm Clyde Lewis from Ground Zero, and you're listening to Veritas with Mel Fabregas. <laughs> 